Amen. May be seated. Please turn in your Bibles. Get your Bibles open. Get your apps open. I think I've I've told you this before, but it used to be that you listened for pages rustling uh, when you said, please turn in your Bibles, because you wanted to make sure that people were actually reading from their Bibles. But now people have their Bibles on phones and tablets, and, and, and so we have beeps and buzzes and so forth. But there's probably an app out there with page rustling sounds. So do me a favor, find that app, download it, and, and so forth. I, I do want to, before we read today, I do want to say something about tonight's service. Um, hopefully I'll still be on my feet, uh, planning on it. But tonight, we're going to look at the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent in the, in the Scriptures. It's a grouping of psalms, uh, a special grouping. We've been looking at different types of psalms. Uh, psalm 1, Psalm 2 is a Messianic psalm, uh, the Psalms of Ascent. Now, I was going to actually have this before my voice kind of went sour on me, but, uh, but I was going to have members of the congregation read through different psalms of ascent. We're going to kind of introduce them tonight. What are they about? What's the purpose of those psalms? But we're going to read all of them this evening. They're not long. They're short. And so uh, come back tonight. You'll be able to stand and read a psalm, perhaps, and uh, if you want to. And uh, we will talk about the psalms of ascent this evening. Our scripture passage today is uh, taken from 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're reading the end of the chapter, uh, to the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 15, down through verse 20, verses 15 through 20. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Wow, isn't that a shift? And we go from Paul saying, I am the, the greatest of sinners, but I found mercy. God gave me mercy. And he ends that section with a beautiful uh, doxological praise to God. God, immortal, invisible. The God who is wise. May honor and glory forever and ever be his. Amen. Now, Timothy, fight the good warfare. Fight the good warfare. You see, Paul knew that the ministry was a battle. 
Paul understood. In fact, to read the life and letters of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, all through his letters, even mentioned in, in some other letters, to read those is to understand that Paul's ministry was full of conflict. It was, in fact, a spiritual war, sometimes physical. Sometimes that warfare became violent. He recounts in a couple of places that he was stoned, that he was chased from city to city, that he barely escaped with his life, that he was shipwrecked. It was not an easy life. It's good to remember this because, pastors today, we, we do love our libraries. We love our books. They don't argue with us. We love our books. They don't cause us uh, problems, you know. We love the library. It's peaceful and, and quiet. But the fact is, the ministry is a good warfare. That's how Paul describes it in this passage. There is conflict. Now, we should never see conflict ourselves and, and generate conflict, but it's going to find us one way or the other. Remember this search committee. Should look for a man who is not a troublemaker, but when trouble is there, he's at the front to confront it, to deal with it, because that is part of the good warfare. That is part of the good warfare. It is all too easy to become so collegial and so uh, wonderful and peaceful and smiling that we do not take care of the issues that arise in the church that need to be confronted. And we're going to talk about a specific issue that Paul had to confront in his work as an apostle in a few minutes. But we're actually now going to break down what is this good warfare. A little more detail involved in this good warfare. Paul used the images of soldiering, of warfare, of conflict, of battle frequently in his letters, and he referred to his compatriots in the ministry as soldiers. Very quickly, again, if you've got fast fingers, turn here, but I'm going to read a couple of these passages. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, the apostle writing to, to the Philippians says this, Philippians 2.25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Notice all those descriptive words of Epaphroditus, a, a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, and a minister. All of those things wrapped up in that person, Epaphroditus but a fellow soldier nonetheless. Philemon 1, verse 2. Philemon 1, verse 2, it's in the introduction, uh, introductory sentence of Paul's letter to Philemon. He mentions uh, his greetings to Philemon and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, at the church in your house the church in your house, but Archippus is our fellow soldier. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You see the, the military imagery 
of Paul and his fellow workers is that they were soldiers, soldiers of Christ. Arise! Go to the battle. By the way, it's a good battle. It's a good warfare. This is something worth fighting for. The gospel is worth fighting for. The church is worth fighting for. The people of the church are worth fighting for, even if sometimes you have to oppose them, but they're worth fighting for. I get really tired sometimes of hearing guys say this, well, that's not a hill I'm willing to die on. I want to, well, exactly what is the hill then? Because they keep saying this. They keep saying this. Huh? Okay, admittedly, we have to use good judgment, but sometimes we use that as an excuse. We use that as an excuse. The imagery of soldiering indicates that there is hardship and there is conflict, especially that one to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering. The soldiering life is not an easy life. Soldiering life places demands on you, and many times there are hardships associated with it. Many times for ministers, there are sleepless nights when there's a crisis in the congregation. Many times there are unpleasant duties that have to be dealt with. I serve on a session uh, in our church in Hawaii, and right now we are dealing with discipline, uh, a discipline case. We're dealing with, with some very hard issues, and yes, it is part of the good conflict. What about a soldier's mindset? Paul alludes to that when he tells Timothy to to endure suffering, share in suffering as a good soldier. There's a mindset uh, of the soldier. In that next verse, 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul says this, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now you might say, well, Paul was the one who enlisted Timothy, right? No. It was Jesus who enlisted Timothy. And he says to Timothy, just like a soldier who concentrates on his task, focuses his attention on the task at hand and does not get entangled with civilian affairs, his life now is the military life and his focus is on pleasing the one, pleasing his superior officer, basically. It's doing the superior officer's will. That's his focus. That's his life. That's the definition of his existence at this time. And so the soldier's mindset is not to be entangled with civilian affairs. The, the minister's mindset is not to be entangled with affairs in, uh, of this world, but rather to please Jesus Christ, not to be diverted with the entertainments, not to be diverted with the, all the things that call for our attention that would pull us away from serving Jesus Christ, the one who enlisted us, in his service. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 6.12, a little further down toward the end, Paul is wrapping up this letter, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter that we know of, that he wrote. He is in prison, and shortly he will be executed. And so he writes this final letter to Timothy, and he says this. These are appropriate words to to end this letter, fight the good fight 
of the faith. Notice again, it's a good fight. It's a good fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That, that second sentence is also a military image. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. There's a hill that must be taken. The enemy has encamped on that hill. You must take that position. You must conquer the enemy. You must go out and take that position, take his flag down and implant the banner of Jesus Christ. Take hold of eternal life. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. That is your goal, to persevere in faith and life, and at the end, to be welcomed into your Father's kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, but now you will enter the kingdom of many, many blessings. Take hold of eternal life. Fight the good fight of faith. That's, that's a call to perseverance. That's a call to maintain faithfulness, steadfastness in the battle. That's the soldier's mindset. Dedicated to his duty, dedicated to the work, not uh, diverted by other things. Civilian matters, as Paul would say here in, the, in this verse. And laying hold of the goal, laying hold, having your sights set on the goal, not only for yourself, but also the goal of Christ's kingdom and the growth and the purity of his kingdom. But every good soldier also needs weapons. We don't fight barehanded. And God has given us certain weapons with which we fight our warfare. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, I don't hear those pages, even with my hearing aids turned all the way up, I don't hear those pages rustling. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Notice again the military imagery uh, woven throughout that statement. We walk in the flesh, but we do not fight. We do not wage war according to the flesh. We don't have guns, we don't have cannons and airplanes and warships and tanks. What we do have are spiritual weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds. Huh. Divine power to destroy strongholds. Notice the next verse, verse 5 in this passage. We notice that much of the warfare is the battle of ideas. The battle of contested ideas, truth versus falsehood, God's revelation versus every other opinion that is raised up against God's truth. And we take, we're, we're, our goal is to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ, to obey Christ. And we destroy arguments, every lofted opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Much of the battle of the Christian servant, the Christian minister particularly, is a battle waged in the, in the area of ideas, truth versus falsehood, 
Ideas have consequences. Good ideas generally have good consequences for people. Bad ideas generally have bad consequences. And so that is a major area of our warfare. But our weapons are spiritual weapons. In another passage, Paul lays that out a little more fully. In Ephesians chapter 6, you knew we were going to this passage, don't you? It's familiar, probably memorized it as a child, or uh, some point in your life, you memorize this passage. Ephesians 6, 12 through 18. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the battle rages. That's where the battle rages. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Remember I said, much of our battle is the battle of truth versus falsehood. God's truth versus Satan's lies. You have the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints." You know, picture the, the Christian dressed in his armor. There's a beautiful passage in uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. By the way, today is the anniversary of the beginning of the sale of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I thought I had to work that in somehow today. But, of course, Christian, the pilgrim, uh, there's a scene where he receives his armor. And Bunyan writes in, in, in the kind of the antiquated way, after, after Christian receives all the elements of his armor, and he's put it all on, and he's tested it out, and it fits, and it, it's all working. And then Bunyan writes, and thus accoutered. Accoutered? Dressed up and thus dressed up and prepared for battle, he went out and continued his journey. Well, that's what we do too. Prayer is the thing kind of that, that is the overall blessing, the overall part of our warfare as well, because prayer is that aspect of our commitment, or our communion with God, whereby we speak to him and open up our hearts and lay before him our burdens and call upon him for help. Everything else, notice, by the way, notice how many of these weapons are weapons that deal with communication of truth. Notice that. Again, that seems to be a particular area of the spiritual warfare and the conflict of the good warfare, the good battle. A good fight. Well, all of this is general understanding. 
But it comes down to a specific example when Paul mentions two men in his in this passage. <clears throat> he says this. Uh, he says in verse eighteen, "I trust and trust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience." But then he turns to address two men that he's had to deal with as part of this good warfare. By rejecting this, that is, by rejecting the faith and by rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander... Who were they? Well, one thing we know about them is that they were probably professing Christians. They were men in the church. Well, Hymenaeus particularly. We're not too sure about Alexander. Here's some other references to these men. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2, 16-18, 2 Timothy is written a few years after 1 Timothy. Again, Paul is back in prison. It's toward the end of his life. And he's giving Timothy his final warnings and final encouragements and instructions. In 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18, he says this, but avoid irreverent battle, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Oof. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, different person here, not Alexander, but Philetus. But Hymenaeus appears here. What's their problem? What have they done? They have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Hold that thought in your mind, because now we. what about Alexander? We don't know exactly who this Alexander was. There's another mention in 2 Timothy 4, 14 through 15 of an Alexander the coppersmith who did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Uh, scholars are not sure that, that this is the same Alexander as mentioned in 1 Timothy. It's quite possible it is, but we're not sure. We do know that this Hymenaeus is the same person that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy. And the particular area of error that Hymenaeus has fallen into and promoted this error so much that he himself has made shipwreck of his own faith and is disturbing the faith of other believers is a particular error that came into the church. He says that the resurrection has already happened. Would, would that upset your faith? Here we are sitting here. We have the blessed hope of the coming of Christ and the resurrection of, uh, of the dead in Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We have that hope. And then someone comes to your church, perhaps a guest speaker. Uh, perhaps Matt makes a a mistake and lines somebody up, lines Hymenaeus up to be your, your, your preacher, and he brings a message to you and says, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not commonly known, but I want to tell you this, 
that uh, the Lord revealed to me that the resurrection has already taken place. Would that upset your faith? Yeah. Now, Paul mentions Hymenaeus twice, but he mentions this error in another place, and that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he is writing to the Thessalonian church, and he deals with a problem that has come into the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be... uh, quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And he goes on, the son of destruction, describing this man of lawlessness. So apparently, Hymenaeus' teaching affected the Thessalonian church. And they had heard, perhaps even he inferred that this was a, a letter. There was a letter from Paul now saying that the resurrection had already taken place, the day of the Lord. And that resurrection is part of the, that day of the Lord. There's a whole complex of events and, and ideas that, that are grouped under that title of the day of the Lord. The coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead are part of that. And that has already come. No, it hasn't come. Paul says that's a deception. It's a false teaching. It upsets the faith of many. It makes shipwreck of the faith. It's a serious error. Now, what has Paul done with Hymenaeus and Alexander? He says this, I have handed them over to Satan as part of the good warfare. And I imagine that was not easy. It was not an easy process. He's talking about church discipline. He's talking about the discipline of the church. I have handed them over to Satan. We call that today excommunication. Paul uses that same term in another place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, when he writes about a man who is committing a serious act of adultery that is well-known in the church, and the church is quite proud of itself. The Corinthians are quite proud of themselves and their church while they are tolerating and, and welcoming this man who is known to be involved in a very wicked, particular type of adultery. And Paul says this, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Literally, what that means to deliver this man to Satan is we we conceive of the visible church of Jesus Christ as the visible manifestation of his kingdom. And you enter that kingdom by profession of faith. At least adults do. Children are baptized, uh, brought into the visible church. 
uh, and they are baptized, but, but adults on profession of faith are given the privilege of the Lord's Supper, communion, the privilege of, of partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is essentially the reverse of that process. The reverse, the actions and the wickedness and the rebellion, uh, despite warnings and admonitions, has continued and perhaps even increased. And now, even as you were received into the visible church and entitled to participate in the communion service, the, the Lord's Supper, which is only for professing believers, now we reverse that. We say, you have put the lie to your profession of faith. Your error is so bad, and your sin is so wicked, and your deception has You've not only deceived yourselves, you are deceiving others and upsetting the faith of many people. And you have refused to listen to the overseers of the church, the faithful elders, who are also part of this good warfare. And so now we excommunicate you. You are no longer allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. This is a a way of saying you've been handed over to Satan. You are no longer considered part of the visible church. The sin has become so entrenched. There has been no response to warnings. The profession of faith has been shown to be false. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 18. He talks about a brother who commits an offense, and there are different levels of dealing with this brother. And finally, Jesus says this, if he, if he refuses to listen to them, that is witnesses who have gone to him privately and tried to convince him and turn him from, from his path, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's kind of a sobering thought, that the, the actions that the, the church might take here on earth, the overseers of the church who are entrusted with the, the uh, maintaining, uh, hearing professions of faith and, and conducting discipline in the church, that their actions echo in heaven. I'm not sure I fully understand that. I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand that, but it is a sobering thought. It is also the reverse of Colossians 1.13. Here Paul writes, He, that is Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, Excommunication is the reverse of that. You'll be taken out of the visible kingdom of his beloved son and handed back to Satan and his kingdom of darkness. Brothers and sisters, that should scare you. That should send chills of fear down your spine. Every elder who has sat on the session has had to deal with cases like this. 
This is part of the good warfare. This is the pointy tip of the spear, as it were, when the church must speak to a rebellious member who refuses to repent and deliver him to Satan. If you or I ever find ourselves in that situation, may you remember these words, may I remember these words. To be delivered to the kingdom of Satan, apart from God working in that person's heart, means the sentence of death, eternal death, is now hanging over you. Like Damocles' sword, that sentence is hanging over your head. Still, there is a slight hint of hopefulness. In both of the cases where Paul mentions handing someone over to Satan, in this case he says, I hand them over, I handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul actually is holding out hope that this discipline will have a restorative effect, that they would actually learn, having been placed outside the church, that they would learn about the seriousness of what they have done, that, that their rebellion would be broken, their heart that has been hardened against God's word would be softened and receptive once again. In the case of the man in the Corinthian church, he says, so that his soul, his spirit, might be saved on the day of the Lord. Here again, he's, he mentions that, that hopeful note that while this is a tremendously serious event, there is still hope. There is hope that this man, and by the way, in 2 Corinthians, Paul alludes to this, and he says this, the punishment that was imposed by many, and he's talking, we believe, about this man. Apparently, the Corinthian church followed through with their discipline, and it had a good effect, and he repented and stopped his sin, and now Paul says you are to bring him back in. You're to bring him back in. That punishment that was imposed by many has been sufficient to accomplish what we hoped it would, and his spirit will be saved on the day of, of the Lord. This is part of the good warfare. It becomes very specific when we deal with, and pastors deal with, keeping, keeping this in mind as you look for a pastor, should not be someone who seeks out trouble, but one who is fully prepared, both mentally, spiritually, intellectually, to confront trouble when it comes. Who will not hide behind excuses, not hide behind his desire for an easy ministry, and to shelter himself among his books. You need a man who is prepared to fight the good warfare. 
I spoke to a church last week, two, the, two weeks, last two weeks. It's a church up in Big Bear. They are looking for a pastor as well. And I said this to them, and I've said it to you. We, we need to find a Timothy. We need to find a Timothy. This, uh, these instructions to Timothy lay out for us a profile of, the, of a good minister, a faithful minister of the gospel. And that's what we should be looking for as we seek our next pastor. Not a troublemaker, but one who is prepared to engage the enemy with the spiritual weapons that God has given to us. One who is prepared to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. One, is, one who is prepared to exercise discipline in the church and to protect the church from false teaching and from sin, the corruption of sin. One who is concerned to protect the honor of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And one who is concerned also through the good warfare of discipline to hopefully, in God's providence, win back the sinner and restore them to true participation in the life of God's people. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come to you today, and again we pray as our church seeks to do uh, to find its next pastor, that you would keep these thoughts before us. But Lord, also we pray that we would apply these things to ourselves. May we guard our faith and our good conscience, knowing that some have rejected these things, but indeed, Lord, you have called us to fight the good warfare, and that requires stamina. It requires enduring hardships. It requires perseverance in faith and life. And so, Father, we pray for all of us that you would give us the grace to do these very things. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.